0: Otherwise your children. last week we talked about issues related to marriage and singleness in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in the verses that follow today, Paul is addressing a specific situation of marriage that affects a lot of people, and it wasn't something that was even uncommon in Paul's day, the marriage of a Christian to an unbelieving or non-believing spouse. Uh, Many couples are married before they come to faith in Christ. And obviously, faith in Christ, it will change your marriage dynamics. Uh, many couples, when they get married, their faith was not strong, or there was some level of immaturity, a lot of growing and a lot of learning that still needed to take place. And each person in a marriage doesn't necessarily grow at the same rate or the same pace. And so while this uh, is a specific circumstance that's addressed today, uh, I think it applies to many different marriages. Uh, there are a lot of men married couples who are not equally yoked. Uh, one spouse is deeply committed in their faith, uh, where the other is just kind of drugged along by the, the spouse that is really in, into, uh, serious about their faith in Christ. And many times, uh, one spouse will continue to grow and change While the other spouse regresses or just remains stagnant, Uh, maybe they never really cared that much, maybe they were angered or hurt or embarrassed, something happened in church, some kind of hurt or grievance that they carry, and there's maybe a resistance of some kind or a hardness toward God or uh, God's people in the church. So uh, while Paul specifically addresses believers married to non-Christians, this is relevant to anyone who is married, who is simply just not in the same place as their spouse. Some of this is natural and some of that's okay. Uh, but just think, this is not a small group of people. This affects an awful lot of people. People. And I find it really encouraging that Paul could see down the road a bit and realize that there are special circumstances that may need an extra word of encouragement along the way. And I believe that's what Paul is doing uh, when he talks about this today. I find it very moving that Paul would specifically address this situation of a believer married to an unbelieving spouse. Because he knows, I think, something of the angst and tension that can exist in this kind of situation. So the rest, I say this, I am not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him verse 12 and 13 there. So we've already heard what Paul has to say about divorce. He reiterates that Jesus, what Jesus has already taught, which is don't do it. Your marriage should not have an escape clause in it. Uh, If there's any way that divorce can be avoided, it should be avoided. Of course, that automatically brings stuff up in us. Well, what about What about uh, abuse? What about infidelity? What about dot, dot, dot? And before we jump immediately into the dot, dot, dots, can we just recognize that if you have chosen the life path of marriage, God wants that marriage to last for life. That is His desire. So when it comes to issues of marriage and divorce, singleness, sexual immorality, uh, and we, brought the re- we bring the reality of our messy lives up to the high ethic of the scriptures. They don't always measure up. Some of us carry a lot of baggage, some of us have not learned to surrender those burdens fully. But praise God. You're here now. You're here now. And you may have unresolved shame from your past. You may be living it right now. But the way that you combat shame is with honor. You're here to honor your Savior. You honor Him in your service. You honor Him by sharing your life with other people. You honor Him by not giving up but by keeping on pressing on to take hold of life in Jesus Christ. So I always was moved by the scripture at the beginning of John. When the word comes, the word becomes flesh. And in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 14 of John's gospel, he says that Jesus came, Jesus the word, he comes full of grace and truth. a whole lot of churches out there that they have a lot of truth but there's no grace. And our Savior is the full venture of both of those things. And you would think those are tensions with each other. Somehow through the Spirit at work in Jesus Christ and His life of perfect love and obedience we don't get a half portion of any of get the fullness of each. So now in this situation of marriage to a non-believer, again we find a strong bias towards a marriage that lasts. Even in, ex- even in these situations of extreme tension, because one fa- one spouse's faith is in a very different place than the other spouse's. That's not always an easy place. There's a lot of, a lot of difficult things that come from that different kind of place that you guys are in. And Paul's first encouragement, I would say, in a nutshell, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't assume that what's broken can't be fixed. If your unbelieving or underbelieving spouse is willing to stay in the marriage, even if they're unwilling to come to the Lord and surrender their hearts fully to Him, then Paul says, you don't give up. Don't quit on it. And then Paul goes on to say some other very interesting things. That's his first word, don't give up. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the other unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children will be, would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So what's happening there? There's a lot happening there. This doesn't mean that the unbelieving spouse doesn't need to come to Jesus to be saved. It doesn't mean that they need to own the lordship of Jesus personally. But what it does mean is if you are married to an unbeliever, they are in a privileged position, uh, whether they acknowledge or recognize that or not. Uh, But nonetheless, they are in a privileged position uh, because they get a front row seat to watch the Holy Spirit at work in your life. So staying married to an unbelieving spouse it honors God because it is Christ like you get to model in a special way what faithfulness what persistence what agape love looks like you get to be like Jesus in a special way your faithfulness to an unbelieving spouse models Christ's faithfulness to an unbelieving church. You want to know the ultimate marriage mismatch? simply just to cling to Christ to love him more and more and I would say don't try to pretend that it's more than what it actually is into the image of Jesus Christ, the differences between where you were and where you are now, those will become more and more apparent and and harder and harder to deny. More and more as you grow in your faith, you will emerge as the anchor and stability of your family. More and more as you grow in Christ, you will emerge as the Peace and the joy in your family. More and more as you grow in Christ, you will be the faithfulness and love modeled in your family. Whereas many times, an unbelieving spouse or an under- under-believing spouse, they will feel stuck by their life circumstances. In contrast, you are being renewed day by day. this business with with children now. Well there's a lot we can we can say about that. Uh, but the bottom line is children are holy. Your children are holy. That means that in their standing before God they are just as loved and accepted and as spiritually protected as a single parent as they are where, uh, In a situation where both parents are believers. In God's eyes, they're just as holy. Now, the, the, the angst of this, this is the sanctifying work, that's the process of being made holy, a sanctification. The tough part of this is, in God's eyes, this is a reality. But single parents, and we've got to recognize this as a church and help each other along. This church family is meant to do this in this way. Uh, The challenges of a single parent, whether the parent, the other spouse is just gone or whether they're not a believer, the reality of that situation brings a lot of significant challenges. challenges are tough. As if there is not already enough pressure and influence in this world. If mom and dad are both faithful believers. If one of parents is a non-believer, not to take their faiths very seriously. And things go that way sometimes. The other way I've seen this go is that kids in the family where mom is a believer and dad is not seem to go that way more than the other way in my experience, what I've seen in American culture. because God has declared your children holy, He is able to provide the grace you need for the additional challenges you're going to face. His grace is always sufficient to whatever circumstance we're in. And it's accessed through faith. But it has called us Christ, that automatically separates you from people who do not have faith, even in a marriage context. So sometimes an unbelieving spouse will have resentment uh, toward that decision for uh, their their spouse being a Christian. And a lot of times an unbelieving spouse will just end a marriage, though, simply because they are following the trajectory of this world. A trajectory that boils down to pride and self-love. A trajectory of life and relationships that do not value faithfulness and fidelity in the same way as someone who has surrendered their heart entirely to Jesus Christ. So, whatever the case may be, if a non-Christian spouse initiates divorce and the situation cannot be reconciled, then you come into a circumstance where you are not bound in that covenant anymore in the eyes of God. That's what Paul's. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you save, will save your wife? This, of course, is the great hope of anyone who is married to an unbelieving spouse or an unbelieving spouse. Is that they will know the salvation of Jesus. This is, of course, a great hope that we carry. The hope is that the spouse will come to profess Jesus Christ as Lord. That the person you have loved in body, you can love them with spirit and soul entirely as well. Whereby, grace, you move to this place Where Jesus Christ is the greatest thing separating you and your spouse. To this place where Jesus Christ becomes the greatest thing pulling you together. Hear a voice from heaven speaking, Calvin, thou shalt take a left turn here. at the door. People would say that the welcome word and I'd do it in did know Swahili as, as well back then. And so I'd go and I would just meet people and people's eyes would just be huge. It was, it was crazy. I'd, this white dude through the Old Testament. We spend a lot of time in the Old Testament before we come into the New Testament. So this first week, I'm out there, and uh, I greet people, and before I know it, we're walking back to the center of the village, and there's this huge mango tree. I mean, you can fit hundreds of people under this mango tree. The, the, The shade of it was so big. You know, multiple people could wrap their arms around the trunk. And so we're there under this mango tree and before I know it, after i greeted people, they want to know what's going on and uh, I've got a hundred men, women, and children following me. And so we go and uh, I begin and I teach from Genesis. They had an idea of a creator God. But that creator God left a long time ago and he doesn't care about us anymore. And I said, that's not true. course, I'm trying to do this. I'm doing it in a new language. And the village drunk shows up. He's not a little drunk. He's like belligerent drunk. And as I'm trying to teach, he's yelling at the top of his lungs, inappropriate comments after I say something. It's a huge distraction. You guys are easy on me. No one is actively heckling me. It's hard to preach when you're actively being heckled. But I get through, and I go, and then I come back next week. And next week, we're in the lessons from Exodus. And I'm talking about what God does in grace to form a special people set aside for his purposes for himself. And I preach through these stories of the Exodus, where he is in this grand experiment trying to pull out from the nations a special people and mold them into becoming a light for all the nations and god begins to reveal his character and his heart reading to them first time i ever know maybe that this these verses were read out loud to them at this village verses from like exodus 34 the lord the lord The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children to their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And they are like, we have never heard this before. Kind of God is this and that second week I'm trying to do this teaching to him and he's just heckling and yelling and distracting and then the next week I come back and we're going to get into the stories of Joshua and judges and I talk about uh, the faith the faithlessness of the people how God is always faithful and the cycle of sin and redemption that takes place in the judges i begin to walk through these stories but before i get there to do the teaching i go down to the land cruiser these some of these people never ridden in a motor vehicle not like this before they didn't know how to open the car doors stuff like that that's how out remote i was in the African bush. bush so we load up overload the vehicle there are people on the front bumper sitting on the hood there are people on the roof rack they're on the back bumper And this drunk guy stumbles up to the vehicle, and he climbs on. And he's standing on the back bumper with about this much space. He's standing on the back bumper holding the roof rack. And I'm driving down the road. I can't drive very fast. You got 30 people in your SUV. You can't go real fast uh, without killing people. So I'm going down, and he is just wasting out of his mind. And we're bumping around down that road. And he passes out just before we get where we're going. And he falls, he's just passed out backwards, nesty plunged into this big puddle of mud. And there he just sits. People are laughing him. He's passed out there. We had a friend then come and grab him by the arms and drag him the rest of the way to where we were, by his arms. It wasn't a terrible far at that point. And prop him up against the mango tree. And so he's against this mango tree and Uh, covered in mud, unconscious, and I begin to teach through Joshua and Judges. And partway through um, uh, my teaching, he wakes up and comes to and just begins to vomit all over. He doesn't even move, so he's just covered in mud and vomit. And uh, I thought heckling was distracting. Having people act- actively vomit in church was also very distracting, as it turns out. So, afterwards, I go up to him, he's covered just his own filth. The choices of, bad choices of life all over the sky. And I introduce myself to him, and we get to know each other by name. His name was John. And then I came back the week after that get into the stories of First and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, Chronicles. We're doing all of this slowly walking through the Old Testament. And uh, the headline I began to notice it was reduced. He began to show up to those meetings, those weekly Bible study meetings. We'd study the Bible for two three hours at a time. It took all day and we would do that just i drive, you know, an hour and a half out there, gathering people, greeting people for a couple hours, a couple hours of teaching, and then a couple hours drive home. It was exhausted the day, awesome. He started to show up sober. And by the time we come to Mark's gospel, he's saying, I'm going to be a Christian now. And we begin as we walk through Mark's gospel, then we go into the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 2, we come to that point of the story where people are cut to the heart. And they ask Peter, What must I do to be saved? And I gave word for word that exact answer that Peter gave that crowd. I gave to these Secuba managers, this little place, nowhere place called Sancti and to be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we set a day where I'm going to come and I'm going to baptize the people. Near the mango tree there's this uh, pond. They use it to water their cattle and stuff. It's a nice sand bottom. Slow slope, a nice gentle slope into the water so people were ready. We're going to have Baptist today. There's a lot of excitement. This is the culmination of what's happening and uh, uh, of months of teaching and working together. And so uh, I'm out there in the water. Guess who was at the front of the line to be baptized? In? It wasn't John. John stood purposely in the very back He was farther than anyone else all the way at the very back. But when I started to call people into the water, he took off at a dead run. He runs into the water, splashes water all over me. And then he says, I just want you to know what Jesus Christ has done to save. were so embarrassed of him that they would hide from him. Wouldn't want to be around him at all. They were so ashamed of him. And Jesus changed his life. And I baptized him in Christ. I baptized 50 people that day. This is the first time I had baptized a larger number of people like that. So I baptized 50 people until my arms, they were aching. I got to tell you, baptizing that many people into Jesus Christ to the point where your arms need, it is the best feeling in the world. Changed his life. But it didn't change his wife's life. She was resentful. She told me, he does not deserve a second chance. He told me, won't last. Won't last. See, I knew that he was a, a drunk, but what I didn't know about John was that he was also a wife beater. He beat his wife all the time, beat his kids sometimes, raised closed fists. Training and he's right there and he's continuing to grow and soak it in. But she will have nothing, nothing to do with Christians of the church. Because she does not think it's gonna She doesn't think it's real. She just thinks this promise to Jesus Christ is one more promise in a lifetime of broken promises, and that's gonna be a broken promise. Later, so he dies. I can't even remember what now. Malaria, or there's all kinds of tropical diseases there. And uh, he dies. Maybe it was just he messed up his liver and things from years of alcohol abuse. The stuff that they drank, it was really harsh. They made this moonshine out of cassava roots and corn, and they would distill it. People, I mean, people went blind from the stuff. It was nasty. Dies and about a year after his death, I get word from another young man in that village that he had baptized that his John's wife into Christ. So later I came and I visited, I found out about this history of brokenness uh, in their family. Never even got to see the results of it. Never even experienced the forgiveness of it. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know whether you will save your wife? They seem impossible. The Lord's forgiveness